All right, friends, a reminder that today is Palm Sunday. What a significant day it is in the calendar of the year. And it is on this day that Christians around the globe celebrate the fact that on a day in Scripture, a historical moment in time, that Jesus marched triumphantly into Jerusalem to begin the process that looked very different than people expected. In fact, there was all these prophecies in the Old Testament of a Messiah, of a king who would come, who would establish God's reign and rule, God's kingdom here on earth. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, a lot of people thought that he was going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. And yet he came riding on a donkey. Very different than how kings came in triumphantly to cities in that day. He was led by kids, people who had physical and mental disabilities, very different than what they expected to have chariots and soldiers and and strong warriors before them. And yet Jesus came as a humble king, a triumphant king, to defeat death once and for all to undo all the effects of sin in all of history and to establish God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. On this Palm Sunday, we also find ourselves at a marking moment in time. For us here in Los Angeles, this is the one-year anniversary from the Safer at Home mandate that was issued a year ago in the midst of the pandemic. A lot has happened in the last year. And when we look back on that last year, it was a year very differently than we projected when we woke up on New Year's Day at the outset of 2020. Today also marks the seven-year anniversary of my candidating sermon. Long before this moment, I was somebody who was applying for the job. And on Palm Sunday, all the way back, In 2014, I preached my first sermon as a candidate here at Bel Air Church on a very powerful Greek word, homothomadon, which is this powerful word that talks about what happens when the Spirit of God can unite people in such a way that there is a force that cannot stop it for God's goodness and glory to the ends of the earth. We also find ourselves in the sixth Sunday in a seven-week sermon series in this season of Lent. Lent is the season that you start right after Ash Wednesday, marching towards Easter Sunday. And as you know, if you've been with us, that we are in this sermon series called Crossing Canyons. And if you've missed any of those, you can go to our website or even onto YouTube. You can search for Bel Air Church for the Crossing Canyon series. Day one, step one to cross the canyons, not just the geological canyons, but the emotional and spiritual and relational canyons is first to show up to the start in the first place. And we've marched our way through the canyon. Last week, we got to the point where we turned around at the right moment. And here we are on this day, applying what was true for us in the Grand Canyon, applying it in our lives, our everyday lives, our emotional lives, relational lives, our spiritual lives, that we have an opportunity when we cross the canyons that God calls us to cross, that once we've crossed them, we have an opportunity to retrace our steps with new eyes. 
It was true for us when we crossed from the South Rim down in the dark all the way up to the North Rim. And we turned around. We didn't turn around too soon. We didn't just keep off going into the, the high desert of Arizona. We turned around the North Rim and we began to, to retrace our steps, not just in our mind, but physically. We took the same pathway back. And what we saw on the way out through that canyon crossing looked very, very different on the way back. Certain things that we had been so discouraged by on the way across, now we're seen with new eyes of, I remember that moment. I was at the end of my rope at that moment. I was beyond my comfort zone at that moment. And look, look where we are now. And as we retraced our steps with new eyes to make our way back to the South Rim to ultimately go home transformed, we realized, and I've realized since then, that when we cross the canyons that God has called us to cross, that he enables us to have not a human perspective, but God's perspective on what we have just experienced. And we begin to see it. We begin to see loved ones we begin to see coworkers. We begin to see circumstances. We begin to see things that we struggle through. We begin to see those people through new eyes from God's perspective. And it makes all the difference in the world. Right now, we're going to go to scripture. In fact, this passage, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, is of course out of order in the the calendar year, the church calendar, where typically somebody would preach a sermon on Jesus marching triumphantly into Jerusalem. Well, this is the moment that happens after Easter, after his triumphal entry, after Palm Sunday, after his death, which we reflect on and we sit in on Good Friday. A reminder that we're going to have a, a very powerful Good Friday service this Friday, we'd love for you to go to our website, bellair.org, to see the details on that, for you to experience that also on our YouTube channel. We, we sit in that reality. We reflect on the links that Jesus went to on our behalf, not as a victim, but victorious. But this passage is also after his death and after his burial and after his resurrection, which we'll celebrate next week on Easter Sunday. And by the way, invite your friends, your family, your coworkers. It's going to be such a celebration of new beginnings, of new hope, of new life. What an opportunity as we go to scripture, as we come home transformed in this sermon series, as we take a look at the parable of the prodigal, what hope we have not only to experience for ourselves, but to share with others. Whether you join us right here where you're experiencing this service or you join us in person on Easter Sunday, it is gonna be a memorable, powerful moment. But this... This is after Jesus' resurrection. Before everybody knew that he rose from the grave. That people had a mindset that was stuck. They had eyes that were focused on a reality. A reality that Jesus, they thought, wasn't who he said he was. We thought he was an overthrow of the kingdom, the Roman Empire. And look, he's, he's dead. And we've heard stories of of people maybe seen him, and yet there was this mindset, there was this perspective, there was a sight that was measured not in faith or in trust, but in simply what they saw in the circumstances. In this passage, 
is a reminder that Jesus comes to give us new eyes, not just on little things, but on big things, not just on some things, but everything. And not just the past and not just the present, but also the future. We're going to get all into that today, but let's read. This is Luke 24, verses 13, and I'll stop at verse 27. Now on that same day, this is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. When they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. Maybe you heard that phrase again and again and again throughout this text, the things, these things. And it's remarkable because it begins with two disciples, followers of Jesus. They're, they're, they're Christians. They've been following Jesus. They're disciples and they, they believe and yet they have a perspective on things in their life. And Jesus, we just read, shows up. And he sees the posture of their heart that their soul is downcast because their view of those things in their life was one in which it left them with no hope. It left them with no joy. It left them with no peace. Their soul was downcast. And so Jesus, he asked them, what things? Now, Jesus doesn't need to learn from them what happened. This is the resurrected Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has just defeated death. He's not clueless asking a question. Oh, I don't know what happened. Illuminate me with the things that happened because Jesus lacked the knowledge. 
In that moment, Jesus was asking a question not to gain knowledge for his own sake. He wanted to understand their perspective on the circumstances. He wanted to understand their view of the things that had happened. And when they share their perspective on those things, what had happened, what their interpretation of those things were, and how that perspective had led them to a place of sorrow, of defeat, of discouragement, of of heading away from Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus told them to stay. With patience, with love, he reframes those things to help them understand those things from God's point of view. What's so remarkable is that Jesus came in and he didn't change the very nature of those things. He changed the perspective of those things. He didn't come and do this, you know, magic trick to somehow reverse the past so that if you were to replay the tape, things would happen differently through the circumstances of the past 72 hours. No, he didn't do that but he reframed their perspective. He showed them how they could retrace their steps with new eyes. But he didn't just go back 72 hours. What did he do? I'll say it again. He says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now we have in our hands, perhaps wherever we are in this moment, a physical Bible, 66 books written over 1300 years through the power of the Holy Spirit by 40 authors on three different continents. It's more like a library than a book, these 66 of them. Some of us have them on a, on a device that we can scroll through, that we can go back to a table of contents and go into a book without having to thumb through. And many of us, we are aware that this one bound book contains two testaments, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament or the Christian Scriptures. And we need to know that when we read this in Luke chapter 24, that that the New Testament hasn't been compiled yet. And every reference to the scriptures all throughout the New Testament is a reference to what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And when I was a kid, I used to think that everything left of Matthew you know, before Matthew, you know, like Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, Malachi, First and Second Kings, everything left of Matthew. Basically, everything in the Old Testament was before Jesus. But everything after Matthew, you know, Mark and Luke and John and Galatians and Acts and Revelation, that was all Jesus and after Jesus. And so maybe, maybe you can relate to this. I used to I used to like the New Testament a lot better. So much in the Old Testament I didn't understand. You know, as a kid that wasn't allowed to watch, you know, 
really violent shows uh, or movies, there were some parts where I was like, whoa, what is this? But I just, I wasn't drawn towards it. And I just, I was kind of a New Testament kind of guy. I like Jesus. And I somehow thought that those were different stories, that somehow the New Testament was tacked onto the Old Testament, or that there was somehow a change of a game plan, that there was a, a plan B. And in Luke 24, Jesus is reminding those disciples and us today that that couldn't be further from the truth. Because all the things that they just experienced in 72 hours needed to be reframed from God's point of view. And they begin to see how the cross, which in the first century was the most horrific form of punishment and execution, reframed through God's purposes, was the means through which Jesus defeated death, atoned for, paid for the brokenness of all of humanity, and enables us to experience what it means for Jesus to cross the greatest canyon of all from heaven to earth so that we could, through faith, have a vibrant relationship with God. He reframed the cross. He didn't erase the cross. He didn't change the circumstances. He, he opened their eyes to see with new eyes what it really meant. But then he went back. And as it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he told them all the things about himself in all the scriptures. You know what that means? That Jesus is saying the Old Testament is about him. The Genesis is about him. Exodus is about him. Deuteronomy is about him. Leviticus is about him. All of it is about him. And this is a reminder in this moment that Jesus is so much more than just a great man, a great teacher, somebody who is just a historical figure. When we zoom out and we understand the fullness of Scripture, we begin to see that Jesus is, yes, fully human, but he's also fully God. He is an integral, indispensable part of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And Jesus didn't just live for 33 years at a moment in time and didn't exist before that and is now dead. No, Jesus, before he was born in the flesh, which is the doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus was the very word of God that has existed for all of eternity. John chapter 1 speaks to this. Colossians chapter 1 speaks to this. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks to this. That actually, Jesus, like God the Father and God the Spirit, has eternally coexisted. And all of this is one beautiful, redemptive story that we are invited into. And he reframed for those Jewish believers everything in the Jewish scriptures, everything in the Hebrew scriptures was about him. He didn't go back in time and change the circumstances of events. He gave them new eyes to see those events. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to understand what, what Jesus meant by that. We're going to see specifically some examples of, of what that looks like in Scripture, but also we're going to have some resources to see what that means in our life, how that changes everything in our life. 
Now, of course, there are many scholars that have talked about this passage and what that means in the Hebrew scriptures. I, through my years of seminary and my doctoral work, got in depth as to the riches and the beauty and the majesty and even the mystery of what this passage means, that Christ is on every pray, page of the, the Old Testament. But one of the, the clearest ways to understand this Probably the most memorable thing that I've ever come across to understand what Jesus is saying here about himself in the Hebrew scriptures was put forth by a gentleman by the name of Glenn Shriver. Lives in the UK. He's about my age. He's a, he's a preacher. He's an evangelist. He's written many books. He's the head of a, a nonprofit to share the gospel with the world. And he says that when Jesus is saying this, that it's important to understand that when you look back into the Old Testament, that we can see a pattern of Jesus. We can see a promise of Jesus. And we can even see the presence of Jesus. And that framework, of course, you know, I love alliteration of, of pattern, of promise, of presence, helps us begin to see exactly what Jesus was saying in Scripture. And what I'm going to say today is how that can help us in our own lives that we have an opportunity as we are people who are willing to cross canyons that once on the other side, we can look back upon them and see the pattern of Jesus, the, the promise of Jesus, and even the presence of Jesus. But as I said at the very beginning, this isn't just about looking back and seeing those things. It's also about looking in the present and it's about looking to the future as well. Quote from him, he says this about the pattern of Christ in the Old Testament. He says, the flood and the ark, the Passover and the Red Sea, the wilderness and the promised land, exile and return, war and peace, kingdom and kings, prophets and priests, the temple, its sacrifices, its rituals, wisdom and death and in life, songs of lament and rejoicing, the lives of faithful sufferers and the blood of righteous martyrs, the Old Testament is extraordinarily Jesus-shaped. The more you study the life of Jesus in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, all in the New Testament, and as you begin to, to uncover what people through the power of the Holy Spirit said about the life of Jesus, for example, the Apostle Paul through all of his letters, what Peter wrote, what Jude wrote, what John wrote, all of these remarkable things, the more we immerse our lives in the New Testament and then we go into the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, we begin to say, I've seen this before. I've, there, there's a pattern here, a pattern of loss and of being found a pattern of destruction and restoration, a pattern of death and new life. Jesus is saying there are patterns of me, Jesus, everywhere. And the remarkable thing is you can actually step back and extrapolate this out to our worlds you can look through science, you can look into the universe, you can study the cosmos, and you can actually see that there are patterns of Christ everywhere. Scientists, astronomers, neurophysicists, as they are studying the, the intelligent, beautiful 
patterned, miraculous design of our world, of our bodies, of our ecosystems, of our planet, of our solar system. More and more scientists are beginning to say there, there is a pattern here. There is intelligence here. Even in the chaos, there's something, there's something behind it. Jesus said for them and says for us today that there is a pattern of Christ everywhere and would we have the eyes to see. But it's not just a pattern of Christ, it's a promise of Christ. Again, Glenn says it this way, the Old Testament saints were not simply tiles and mosaic witnessing unwittingly to a gospel pattern of which they were ignorant. They too looked forward to the fulfillment of these patterns. How? Through the promises. In fact, this is how Jesus, Paul, and Peter saw it. There are passages after passages in the New Testament that speak back to the Old Testament and say, see, that's what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. You see, that's what Jeremiah prophesied about Jesus. You see, that's what Hezekiah and Amos and Esther prophesied about Jesus. There are promises in the Hebrew Scriptures that all point to Jesus. And we have so many Jewish believers within our church family who were born into a heritage, were born into their faith, who are Jewish by birth, who are Jewish by heritage, who have seen throughout the, whole, the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that the promises of the long-awaited Messiah have found their fulfillment. They're not still being waited for someone new to come. They found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was saying to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all the things that Moses said, the prophets said, all of scriptures, all of that promised my coming. And the mathematical probability of someone fulfilling just two of those prophecies is so astronomically slim that the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of them has been articulated from a mathematical, a philosophical, a cosmological, a, a hermetological, all these ways in which we can study these things, it is mind-boggling. The majesty and the mystery of Christ. But it's not just patterns of Christ in the Old Testament, not just promises of Christ. There was a very real presence of Jesus Christ in the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, we see this throughout the, uh, the New Testament. In John 8, 56 through 58, the very I am in whom Abraham rejoiced, the Abraham that we find in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the very I am in whom Abraham rejoiced was Jesus. Who says that? Jesus was the very one who said that in John chapter 8. In Hebrews 11, it says, the Lord who motivated Moses in the wilderness. That's the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. The Lord who motivated Moses was Christ. Did you know that Jude 5 says that the Redeemer who brought the, name, the nation of Israel out of Egypt? Again, that's Exodus. In Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Numbers, that Redeemer was Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, it says that the rock in the wilderness... Again, this is the book of Exodus. Was Jesus? In John 12, 40 through 41, it says, the king of Isaiah's temple vision, where he says, I saw the Lord 
seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. He wasn't seeing God the Father. He wasn't seeing God the Spirit. John 12, this is Jesus himself saying that who Isaiah saw was Jesus. When you begin to read the Hebrew Scriptures, you begin to see that Jesus was right. That all of Scripture, all the Hebrew Scriptures was a pattern of Jesus, a, a promise of Jesus, and a presence of Jesus. And here's what's remarkable. There are moments, there are narratives in Scripture where all three of those things come together at once. And we see this in Genesis 3, we see this in Genesis 22, and we see this in Exodus 3. And I want to move through these pretty quickly, but you can see how the pattern and the, the promise and the presence of Jesus is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and I want this, as we immerse ourselves into this, not to be like just an academic lesson, but for us to open up our hearts and our minds to the cosmic majesty and mystery of this Christ that we celebrate on this day, on this Sunday and every day, who enters into our lives and gives us exclusively the ability, through him, the ability to see with new eyes every single thing in our past and in our present and in our future. And we're going to go from this perhaps an academic to so practical by the very end. Listen to this. This is in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Again, this is the moment that the nation of Israel uh, was just two people. It was Adam and Eve. Long before Abraham, long before Isaac, long before Jacob, long before Noah, it was these first humans. And we see in the very beginning that God created all things and put these first two humans, and it's such poetic, beautiful language. And they were called to be obedient to God's word, to eat from every tree of the garden, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sadly, they were deceived. Sadly, they forgot and they ate from that tree. And the remarkable thing is that there is then a, a consequence for their actions. And it says that there will be multiple things that would be cursed. The ground would be cursed. Uh, the work of their hands would be cursed. Uh, future generations would be cursed. But remarkably, it never says that they would be cursed. But there is a chasm that now exists between them and, and God. And it says that God covered them in a way that they couldn't cover themselves. Remember, they covered themselves with fig leaves. We've been doing that ever since, trying to cover up our mistakes, cover up our shame, cover up our wrongdoing. We do it through religious good deeds, putting on a smiling face, saying that we've got it all together. And they weren't able to cover themselves. They weren't able to make themselves right. And so God covered them with the skins, the garment of an animal. This is the first sacrifice in Scripture. And we see right there in that moment a pattern of Jesus. That they couldn't be whole, they couldn't be thriving, they couldn't be alive unless they were covered by a sacrifice. That is the first pattern 
pattern of Jesus right there in Genesis 3, but it goes on. You see, there is a promise right in the midst of this. God speaks and says this in Genesis 3.15, that there would be the seed of a woman. In other translations, the offspring of a woman who would do battle with the offspring of the enemy. And what's so remarkable about that in that ancient culture, in that ancient land, you would never talk about the offspring of a woman. You would only talk about the offspring of a man. And that promise speaks to one day that there would be a woman who would have an offspring that didn't come from a man. It was the first promise of the miraculous virgin birth of Mary. And there's this promise that that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the enemy, even though the enemy, the serpent, would bite his heel. That there would be a mortal blow against the enemy, though there would be a crippling blow against the offspring of the woman. And that was a promise that one day that there would be a savior to come who is Jesus, who would experience the crippling blow of the cross, who bears the scars from the crucifixion, the, 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 the lashings on his back, the beating of his face. He bears those scars and yet it defeated and dealt a mortal blow to God's enemy and even death itself. It was the very first promise of Jesus right there in Genesis 3. But did you know that Jesus was also present in the garden? There's this beautiful section that it says that that God arrived and walked in the garden. In John chapter 1, it says that we can never see God, but it is the Son of God who makes him known. The very person millennia before Jesus, the Son of God, was born in the flesh, again, as the Word of God, as the Son of God, as the eternal Logos, was the one that walked in the garden. Scripture also says that because he is the Word of God, that anything that God speaks as the Word of God is the Son of God. Again, this is mysterious, mind-boggling things, but just think that the very words that they heard in the garden were Jesus. The very one that they heard walking in the garden was Jesus. That the very covering of the sacrifice was a promise of Jesus. That these remarkable things were just a pattern of Jesus. We find all of it right there in Genesis chapter 3. Something perhaps so misunderstood. Jesus says, no, this is how it all points to me, Jesus says. Let's move on. In Genesis chapter 22, a famous passage of scripture where Abraham is asked by God to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there. And we see there the pattern, the promise, and the presence of Jesus. We see a son who was asked to walk up a hill carrying wood on his back, which is a pattern of Jesus. Millennia later, who would walk a hill with a cross on his back? And we see a promise in that story in Genesis 22, where 
there is this truth, there is this faith that Abraham said that through his offspring, the, the nations, uh, the world would be blessed. And this was his only son that he was walking up the mount to sacrifice. And it literally says that he believed that even if his son died, that God had the power to raise him from the grave. And remember, a ram is provided, a sacrifice, a substitute is provided so that his human son didn't have to be sacrificed, but rather this, this substitutionary uh, ram would be sacrificed. And he names that place, the Lord will provide. Did you know that Mount Moriah, the very place that Isaiah or that uh, Isaac went to that was almost sacrificed, that he didn't have to be sacrificed, is the same area that many, many years later, Solomon built the temple, which is also the same place. Some of you know this geographically, which is the same place that Jesus walked many, many millennia later, which is also the same place called Golgotha which is the same place that the Son of God walked carrying a cross. The very place that Abraham named the Lord will provide, thinking it was just about that moment, becomes millennia later the place that the Lord provides for you and for me through the perfect substitutionary death and sacrifice of the Son of God. But it's not just the pattern. It's not just the promise. It's the very presence of Jesus. To think about this, that millennia before Jesus would go to the cross in the same geographical spot, that the very voice of God shows up and we hear the voice of God speak. And we hear this voice in Genesis chapter two, 22, verses 16 and 7. And the voice says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless. I will surely multiply. That very voice was Jesus himself. Even John Calvin summarizes and says, the Orthodox doctors of the church have correctly and wisely expounded that that moment, that it was the word of God that spoke to Abraham. This moment tucked away in the Hebrew scriptures that we might look at and say, what is this about? Was all about Jesus. The patterns, the promises, the very presence of Jesus were all there. Let's go forward even more to Exodus chapter three. Burning bush moment. Remember Exodus. Moses has been out in the wilderness. He's now 80 years old. And he, in this place, uh, comes across a, a bush. Now, as a pattern, how fascinating that uh, a bush was also uh, a metaphor, was an imagery, a symbol of God's people. And remember that bush was burning? That bush was consumed? Also symbolic that God's people in slavery under Pharaoh were consumed. They were on fire. They were in the midst of destruction. And how remarkable that the voice of the Lord comes not from outside the bush, doesn't come from outside the fire. It comes from within the bush. It comes from within the fire. 
And that's a pattern of Jesus, that the Savior, Jesus, would come from within the people, that he would be born among them, that he would walk with them, that he would be part of the lineage of Abraham. But even more so, that he would be born in the midst of the suffering and the sorrow of humanity. We see right there a pattern of Jesus. But there's also a promise of Jesus. This remarkable moment that the nation of Israel would be one that would grow out of slavery, that the nation of Israel would actually come out of slavery and into a promised land, that they would come from a place of destruction to to reconstruction, from death to life. And there's a promise of a a savior, of a redeemer, of a leader that we see typecast in Moses who ultimately points to the promise of the true Moses that is Jesus who pulls us out of our Exodus journeys into the promised land into a relationship with God. But it's also his presence. Remember the voice that spoke from the bush, I am who I am? That very voice was Jesus himself. Again, remember Jesus says, the I am that spoke to Abraham, Jesus says, was me. In all these stories, we have a microcosm of this this mysterious, miraculous, magnificent truth that Jesus is everywhere. In so much of our life, we, we cross canyons, we refuse to cross canyons. And Jesus says, there are patterns of me in this. There are promises of me in this. And there is the presence of me in this. You see, when you are the type of people that have the courage to do the things we've talked about in this series, and again, you can go back and watch what we've covered so far, that when you cross those canyons, you can actually look back and you can see, wow, I see that those moments, those hard moments in the darkness, in the discomfort, in the sorrow, in the heartache, Even when I got to the bottom of it, I saw a pattern of Jesus there. I saw the promise of Jesus there. I saw the presence of Jesus there. And like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of a sudden you awaken to the truth of the Savior that has been there all along. And it reframes your heart from sorrow to celebration, from downcastness to delight. And Jesus wants to do that, not just in the past, just in the short term of the canyons. He wants to go all the way back in your past. There are things in your life that have caused wounds and scars, things that you don't want to think about, things that you want to avoid. But there's an opportunity because of who Jesus is, not as some historical figure, but the cosmic Christ, the mysterious Christ, the magnificent Christ, who all of Scripture points to, who exists outside of eternity, where patterns and promises and presence are everywhere. There is an opportunity for Jesus to heal every single memory of your past. And he doesn't do it by coming in, erasing your memory and, you know, changing the circumstances. No, what he does is he comes in and he gives you his perspective. One of the most healing things that you can ever do is in a time of prayer, say, Jesus, can you give me your perspective on that moment? 
because I need your perspective because that moment was the moment that I look back upon and I said back then and I look back upon it and you seemed nowhere. God, where were you back then? And that is a deep work. That is an honest work. That is a vulnerable work. That is an authentic work to open yourself up to, to invite Jesus, to go to the darkest moments of your life, to invite Jesus in and to say, help me see. You know, these things, we've got a lot of these things. And Jesus doesn't change these things. He changes our perspective on these things. And you can literally take time and you can do this in community with others. You can, in prayer, say, Jesus, can you walk with me through my childhood? Can you walk with me through my divorce? Can you walk with me through my losing my job, losing my hope, losing my loved one? Can you walk with me through the hardest parts? And then as you do that, you can actually go back and walk through your life and say, Jesus, actually, can you walk with me through some of the highest moments of my life where I was having so much fun that I didn't even give a thought for you, that I didn't even think about praying for you, that I didn't even think about asking help. Can you, can you give me your perspective on those things when I got the job, when I earned that thing, whatever it might be, you can actually go back through your life and in prayer and say, Jesus, show me the patterns of you, the, the promises of you in your very presence. And when you do that in the past, it so changes your present, but it also can change how you see the future. You see, Scripture says that humanity makes plans, but the Lord directs our steps. There's an opportunity as you look out into the future to retrace your steps with new eyes, steps that you haven't even taken yet, by immersing your life in God's word, to say, God, what would you have for me? How do you want me to enter this situation, this relationship, this new season, this new year, this new job, this new relationship, this new circumstance? There is a remarkable asset that is too small of a word. We have a remarkable savior, a remarkable king, a remarkable redeemer, a remarkable Lord, a remarkable Christ that marches into our life very differently than we think, who reframes everything in life to help us see it from God's perspective. And if he could reframe the cross to be the worst thing that the history of the world has ever brought forth, to see it as the very instrument through which God redeemed the world, then anything in your life he can redeem and reframe and help you understand that perhaps it was part of understanding the links that Jesus would go through to help you understand just what he bears upon himself. Isaiah says that he wears all of our grief and our iniquities. Everything that we've experienced, he has experienced, that God somehow allows these things. It doesn't delight in it, it breaks his heart. But all of it is used to work towards a plan and a purpose for us to experience a vibrancy with Jesus Christ. So my friends, on this Palm Sunday, on this day and every day, would we allow Jesus to retrace our steps with new eyes, now and forevermore? Let's pray. Jesus, these things are, are, are beyond me. 
my head hurts when I think about some of these things and how magnificent it is. And my mind as a human can't grasp the fullness of who you are. And yet you choose to reveal these things to us through your scripture. You tell us to press in, to seek you, to ask for wisdom and understanding. And as we have a wonder of you, a fear of you, a humble awe of you, may that be the beginning of understanding. So Jesus, do a work in us, heal us, help us to see from your point of view. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we sit together. Amen.